Now, you, uh, you'd be right in thinking this is probably the most crazy passage to be preaching from on Easter Sunday, uh, these three verses from Romans chapter 8. And if you are thinking that, you are probably right um, at this moment. I'm, I'm certainly with you on that. But in a sense, every passage within the whole of the canon of Scripture, the whole Bible, could be preached at this very time, on this very day. Because everything, if you like, points to these magnificent events of Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we're going to, if you like, slow down a little, but continue in our series that we've been looking at a number of weeks now through this amazing chapter of Romans uh, chapter 8. We're going to look at three verses. And if you're wondering how I possibly could do that, let me tell you, I think that there was a particular preacher in the 1950s in London in Westminster Chapel who spent six months on these three verses. So I'm not going to put you through that, so don't panic. (laughs) But essentially what Paul is doing here with these wonderful assurances, the whole way through the chapter, it is a great assurance to a persecuted church of their salvation in Christ. But he does it now, if you like, with the scope of looking back to eternity past and looking forward to eternity future. And hopefully we'll see that the gospel events of that first Easter were and continue to be central to history, central to the good news message of the Bible, and central to the hope of every single Christian, worldwide and down through the ages. Now, much of what Paul has been saying in this chapter, in Romans chapter 8 so far, has been directed to the gospel privileges that we know as Christians today, in the present. He's used various terms like, Uh, Life in the spirit or the spirit of life that has been given to the Christian for assurance today. But Paul now takes our gaze from the present and if you like sweeps back over the plans and the purposes of God from past eternity to future eternity. And the point is this, without the bigger picture if you like, and we'll see where Easter fits into that so don't panic. Without this bigger picture... It'd be very easy for the Christians to give up. And do remember, Rome, back in those times, so early, early first century, huge persecution amongst the Christians and the church there under Nero and many other emperors of the time. But without, you see, this bigger picture, God's greater purposes uh, from eternity past to eternity future, it would be far too easy for the Christians suffering so much at the time to just kind of all say, oh, this is too much, I'm afraid. I'm just going to kind of, I'll leave this stuff. I'll just go along with all the other people at the time and turn their backs on God when things get tough. We need the bigger picture. Now, let me illustrate if you can. Yeah. If you were to just take a, a bad month in a year, maybe you've had a bad month travelling with work or whatever it's been, you know, a difficult boss who's given you, a, you, you look back at the month of April and you think, oh, that was a tough one. Or the, or the month of March and you think, oh, never again. And you take from that that the whole of 2015 is a terrible year. Well, that would lead you into all sorts of trouble with that kind of logic, wouldn't it? It'd be like you get onto the train in the morning and you see that the one seat that you want to sit on you know, it's broken, it's a spring sticking out of it. And you, and you think, oh, well, that's terrible. Therefore, the whole train must be awful. And you just, instead of sitting down on the comfy chairs in the whole carriage, you, you just stand up for the whole of your journey. The one is not representative of the rest. 
Now, I know all the commuters are thinking, well, there's never any chairs whatsoever. So that's a useless illustration. But you get the point. We need a big picture. And so Paul, simply in these three verses, what he does is he sense moves our gaze from the present to scan the whole. But perhaps the most important and interesting part of this is that we will see that uh, the reality is that we are not the centre point. Going back to eternity past and looking forward to eternity future, you and I at Easter 2015 are not the central focus of this sweep of history. But another Easter is and another person is. As we saw two weeks ago, Christians have hope in the present, but we must recognise that Christian hope is rooted in the past and points forward to a future eternity, secured by the work of Christ that first Easter, as he died on a cross and blazed a trail to glory, defeating death. It's the centre point of all human history. It's the Easter above all Easter's, if you like. It's the Easter where God in his covenant love was willing even to sacrifice his own son, the suffering servant that we saw of Isaiah 53 in those opening verses of our service. He's the historical man and the promised king who hung on a Roman cross as foretold six centuries and five centuries before by numerous prophets of God. He died in the place of those who would put their trust in him. And he died as Isaiah 53 very clearly spells out, taking on himself the punishment or the justice that my rebellion against God deserves and yours. And then he rose, which is why we celebrate today, defeating death for all who would trust in him. And in so doing, he offers in his kindness and his love, his death and resurrection to be counted as ours by faith. He essentially, I, I, essentially, I describe it to my children like this. It, it's a swap. The justice we deserve is placed on him. And the forgiveness and eternity of resurrection life that he earned with his perfect life is credited or counted as ours if we trust him. And this is what Romans 8, if you like, in its, in its entirety, assures Christians of. This is certain salvation. And it sweeps through the ages to Easter 2015. And it is on offer today for those who recognize that Jesus is Savior, that he saves us for heaven. And he is Lord, that is King of the whole earth and our lives too. So you see, if we gaze simply at the present, this next week, today, tomorrow, uh, it provides an incomplete picture of us, it comply, it, and more importantly, an incomplete picture of God and his loving intervention in history. So we look back and we look forward, essentially to widen our gaze, to see the big picture. It is this eternal assurance of God's love and his promises to us that make these verses, these, just these three verses, possibly the best known verses of the whole uh, New Testament, maybe even the Bible. Some scholars even liken these verses, I was reading this this week, to a pillow to, and on which to rest weary heads. And that may be you. 
wearied by the world. I've summarised these verses. You'll see on your sheets from two points, very, very simply, to remind us that God's love displayed that first Easter in all its glory, assures us now, today, but also for our futures. So firstly, our first point there, you see God's good work uh, for his people. It's the, the, firstly, we see this assurance in that, his good work for his people. Why don't I read verse 28 again, just to remind ourselves of where we're heading. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I guess the problem is that sometimes what is going on in our lives doesn't feel necessarily good. Maybe that's at work, in a relationship. Sometimes we may even question God, asking, why does God allow this kind of stuff happen to me? Likewise, you might see suffering in the world, like we've seen, for example, in Ethiopia this last week, awful atrocities. And isn't that the same question on our mind when we see that thing, those things? How can God work in these kind of ways? Can he be really sovereign, all in control, and good, given what we see? Surely it's got to be one of the biggest objections I hear to the Christian faith from everyone I speak to. Let's just break this down then, if we can. Break down the verse and see what we do know before we make any kind of assumptions. Firstly, we know from what the Bible tells us here, we know that in all things, God works. That is, God works behind and in and through all things in life and his creation. The Bible declares that he is sovereign in control over all. He's behind, not always responsible. We need to be clear of that. But God is in control over every event of life, the breath we breathe, the struggles we face, even the suffering in the world. He is sovereign over all things. And we know that from the Bible, in all things God works. But it says, for the good of those who love him. God being the epitome of good, if you like. With everything he is, and in his being as well, he is completely good. He can do none other than be good, if you like. And that good, we see there, is directed towards those who love him. It's an extraordinary kind of condition there, isn't it? And we see God's intention or purpose for his people is good, which is finally and completely known in salvation. But it is limited, if you like, to those who love him, who've put their trust in him. So we know that in all things God works for the good, and then we have his condition of those who love him. And they're the ones who have been called, it says, according to his purpose. Now, what does that make us then? Well, if you like, our love towards God is, yes, it's not just kind of an empty gesture. It is a real love. It is a relational love, born in a covenant, if you like. But it's a, in a sense, it's a rebounding from God's love that has existed for us throughout eternity. Those who love God have been called by him. That is, they've been saved by him. It's an effectual call, as we'll see in a moment. You see, as, although life may be chaotic, troublesome and even painful in the present, I don't know what your life's going through at the moment. This verse tells us that we should know to take a step back. We should all look at the bigger picture and how God is working in his world. God is working for the good of those who love him. He's working right now to bring all of his promises 
in all of his covenants in the Old Testament to fruition in and through the Lord Jesus Christ for our good. It is not a chaotic existence. It is a lovingly directed existence by a sovereign creator and Lord. So you cannot, um, if you think about kind of Eastern philosophies and stuff like that, you know, these things like the butterfly effect where, you know, a little butterfly flaps its wings over here and suddenly there's a typhoon over the rest of the, the other side of the world. You know, that's kind of, it's a bit of kind of karma. It's bad karma. It causes chaos and so on. No, we can't subscribe to that kind of thinking biblically. Rather, what we know is that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. He's in control. You might feel hurt. You might feel lonely right now. You might feel that just life is just getting too much. You feel downtrodden, feel sad. And those are real and they are appropriate, present feelings that many people will feel. But what we do know in an objective reality, in a biblical eternal truth, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And presently it may be to humble us. Presently, he might be working in in aspects of your life to to draw you closer to him. To make us more dependent on him. But ultimately, God works for our good in bringing us salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ to glory, as we'll see uh, in a moment. It might not subjectively right now feel very good. Life might be pretty tough. But objectively, we know that God is working for our good if we love him. And what a good it ultimately is. For God is working for our supreme good, despite how tough it might seem right now. There's an example of this, a very famous one, in the, in the first book of the Bible, in, in the book of Genesis. In the story of Joseph, you'll probably know it for the technical dream coat. And that, it's not the technical dream coat, it's not in the Bible there, but it's a multicoloured coat which he was given by his father. And there in Genesis chapter 50, having been sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph declares, can we trust in God's promises? And Joseph said to his brothers who'd returned, looking for his mercy, he said, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. See, what he's saying there is that the struggles of living in a groaning and sinful world, you know, in many of our lives, we see that. But that struggle, that, that, that menacing kind of torment that many of us feel, doesn't exclude God's saving work and interventions through that, as we see in the story of Joseph. We see human evil and God's saving power at work in his life, but ultimately... You see those two things coming together. And that's what we remember on Good Friday, on the cross. See, neither our struggles or human evil will ever thwart God's plan to save his children. And it's this saving purpose for God's children that Paul now strings together, if you like, in these next two verses. What is meant by God's good purpose at the end of verse 28, if you have a look at that? His good purpose is now, if you like... Walk through in five stages, and we're going to see that uh, in our second point. And here is the chance now, if you like, to, to really properly step back. And if you like, view, taking the whole scope of God's salvation plan. Uh, some people call it Paul's golden chain. That is, you can't break the link anywhere. It is a logical, hear this please, it's a logical, not a temporal in time kind of chain. 
For some of these stages happen simultaneously in the life of a believer. But these verses trace God's good and saving plans throughout and give us a big picture, but also help us put the present in context. Let's remind ourselves of these two epic verses. Let me read again verse 29 through to verse 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So we get to our second point here. God's good saving purpose for his people. I, you hopefully spotted in those two verses, and I've put them down on your sheets as well. Five logical steps from eternity past to eternity future. The, get, take us to glory, if you like. And the point I want to, I'm not going to tell you the answer straight away. But I want you to just, you know, just in a moment, where is Easter in that chain? Where is Easter? I hope by the end you'll know the answer. If not, over coffee, we can work it out. But where is Easter? That's what I want you to think. Let's find out. How does the process begin? Firstly, you'll see that God foreknew those God foreknew. Now, of course, we, we kind of roughly know what that means. To foreknow something is to know beforehand, isn't it? And this, in one sense, is true of our salvation, but the biblical word seems to imply far more than just a kind of a, a dry, empty, a kind of dry knowledge. It seems to suggest a much more relational love. Hence, why a lot of scholars would say it is really that God foreloved us. That's probably a better translation in some ways. And I also note, as you go through these couple of verses, note that nothing here is dependent on you or me. We're not foreknown because, oh, look at God. He kind of looked at me and thought, well, he's rather special. Or you and thought, oh, you're, you're slightly more moral than your neighbour. And therefore, yeah, well, I'll have him. I love him more. There's none of that here. Nothing is dependent on us. Rather, this beginning of the process of salvation is completely in its entirety due to God's love for you. Would you want it any other way? Really? Perhaps one day you might think of yourself fairly upright. Perhaps you might think that God should even ask to maybe, would you mind putting yourself forward for salvation? But take a step back, have a think. How assuring is it that God loved his children before time? God has foreknown his children and it goes on, he, those who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. We go to our second point there, uh, God predestined. Love, if you like, is the motivation he foreloved. And it is followed by a decision, if you like. Those God foreknew, he predestined, he decided to love and act upon that. And although we as Christians, if we are a Christian here today, we all know that we've perhaps decided at a moment, and we perhaps even some of us can think of the time and the place where we said, I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a real and right and proper uh, feeling and, and understanding. We've done it, uh, and we should do it every day. As we submit ourselves to God as Lord, 
We decide. But, critically, before that, God decides. Well, at that point, you're probably thinking, well, I don't really get that. And in a sense, it is a very difficult doctrine or teaching to understand. I'd love to spend all evening on it. But this part of the process I can't sort of say it's a little difficult and therefore I'm going to take that part out. It doesn't work like that. God foreknew, God predestined. You can't take one out just because it, it feels slightly uncomfortable. Firstly, in doing so, well, one would be moving swathes of biblical evidence that God predestined those he loves to be his children. But secondly, it smacks into the heart uh, of what Christians know and experience. I cannot, and no Christian here will be able to say, hey, I I looked at myself one day and I thought, I'm so special, God's going to love me, and God's going to choose me. How arrogant that would be. Nothing of my salvation is due to my experience whatsoever. And nor anyone here. This word testifies, uh, and God's word testifies that before I was blind, Ephesians says, but now I see. God does the work. I've done nothing to make it possible for me to enjoy eternity with him. God undeservedly decided in his amazing love to save me. And as a Christian, my response is simply a life saying thank you. It's not to earn anything. It's simply to say thank you. I've done nothing to deserve this. But thank you, Lord. Those God foreknew, he predestined. There are are many arguments against this truth. Why? Because it smacks, doesn't it, against our cultural autonomous existence. But the critical thing I think I found as a kind of a a student trying to understand this teaching was this. I I thought it was going to lose my freedom. It was going to make me sort of like an autonomous robot. But I was going to lose my freedom. But actually it is gaining perfect freedom in Christ. When we are chosen by him, predestined. I'm sure we have many questions about this glorious truth, but what do we know from God's word? Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. And it says, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among among many brothers. See, it's an interesting emphasis that Paul kind of makes in that verse, isn't it? It You expect it uh, to be kind of dry. And kind of doctrinal as a kind of teaching word. But actually, what is it? It's very relational. Very practical. Simply God's purpose in predestination of his children is to firstly become more like Jesus. And secondly, to enjoy Jesus. To be part of his family. His church, of which he's the first fruits of it, says there. You see, in being chosen by God, we're to enjoy him. His son and his church. So firstly, God foreknew us, then he predestined, verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Now some people would describe this as, if you like, the historical application of God's eternal predestination. It is what happens as we know it, as we experience it within time. The first two, outside of time. This one, in time, called. How does the call come? It comes through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on a cross, as I said at the beginning, and he rose again to offer us new life. We're called by God as we hear that gospel message. It's not the, the kind of call that you, will, uh, you or I will utter in our lives. I remember some, some of you will know my eldest son, Barnaby. A few years back, he had a, a little operation on his ear. He didn't particularly hear much. We only found out about six months after it probably happened, which is probably a little bit lacking in my parenting there. But, you know, there he was. He'd been walking around, really struggling to hear for quite a while. His operation went uh, well. And after about an hour, he started saying all these kind of funny things. Uh, you know, just sort of waking up a little bit groggy. And he'd be going, hello. And I'd be going, hello, Barnaby. <laughs> so slightly strange. And then he'd be going... Mm, and making various sort of sounds of different kind of intonation of his voice. And then suddenly he went, I can hear. And it was lovely. It's really, you know, what an amazing, because his eyes sort of light up. He could hear all the tones of his voice and others as well. But even with his improved hearing, Barnaby is still a typical boy. That is, he doesn't always listen. And parents around will all be going, yeah, i got one of them as well. <laughs> See, my calling of him, Barnaby, would you come downstairs? Uh, maybe responded to, maybe not. Would you clean your room? Maybe, maybe not. When God, when God calls his children, it takes effect. The gospel may be preached to millions... But through that, God will call some from death to life. And the message and the call of the preacher is just, if you like, the conduit in which God's will will effectively call some. Those God foreknew, he predestined. And now in history, he called. And fourthly, he justified. See, God's uh, effective call enables those who hear to simultaneously believe and those who believe are justified. Again, we could spend, and I would love to more than anything else, spend a whole evening looking at the subject of justification. But simply justification, well, it's way more than forgiveness. More than acceptance. Justification is the declaration, it's a legal term, it's the declaration before God that you are right with him. That you are righteous, the Bible would say. You are righteous in his sight. In putting our faith in Jesus, we are, as the Bible describes, that faith, it's called a faith union. We are bound to him by faith. And as I explained before, that in that little swap, his righteousness, his perfect life is credited to us. It's a legal terminology which says, my life is yours. Likewise, Jesus takes on himself. It's a double swap, if you like. Jesus takes on himself the justice, the punishment that my rebellion against God deserves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it well, I think. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to take the punishment my sin deserves. So that in him, that's speaking of that faith union, we might become the righteousness of God. Those God foreknew, 
He predestined, now in history he called. He justified and lastly he glorified. It is the glory that Romans earlier has shown that we all uh, fall short of. It is the same glory that we hope for in chapter 5 of Romans. And Paul has uh, already stated back in verse 21 of this chapter that our union with Christ, we will not only share in his suffering, but this same glory that he now speaks of here is the end of this logical chain of salvation. But to be glorified is, is for us to be complete. It is the end point where we'll have our new bodies, if you like, where we'll be in the new creation, heaven, if you like, where there will be no crying, no mourning, no pain, no sickness, no despair will hinder us. Here's the question. Why then, in this verse, is this written in the past tense? He also glorified. See, what Paul speaks of here is the last in the process of a line where God cannot stop what he began before history itself. It hasn't happened. But if you've known God's effectual call in your life, if your eyes have been opened to the gospel, if you know the reality of being justified, that you are legally right before God because the perfect life of Jesus has been credited to you, if you know that, then you will. With utter certainty, you will be glorified. And that's how sure Paul was. He wrote it in the past tense as a result. And notice there's no condition. There's no condition here. There's no, you might be. We're not sure. We're going to speculate a little bit. No, you will be. Let me conclude as we close. Take a step back from today and look at eternity past to eternity future and ask yourself, in this chain of salvation that we see in verses uh, 29 and 30, are you there? Are you there? If not, hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect, righteous life. He died on a cross that we remembered three days ago, bearing a justice, a punishment that my rebellion deserves. He was buried in a grave that he borrowed, fulfilling prophecy 600 years before. And he rose again, evidenced by Romans, by Greeks, by Jews, all the people that hated him, as well as evidence in the Bible as well, seen by 500 people in one account in 1 Corinthians 15. Hear the gospel, inquire of it, and seek God's effectual call in your life. But if you do know that you've been called justified and that one day you will be glorified, then rejoice. Stand secure, knowing that that what has been decided in eternity passed by God, secured in history that first Easter as Jesus died and rose for your justification, know that one day it will come to its fruition. You will be glorified. Therefore know that however today is, whatever tomorrow throws at you, this link will not be broken. You will be glorified. Happy Easter. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, just as we look back, remind ourselves of that amazing account of a resurrection day, that first Easter. So many things seem to fall into place. They seem coincidences at first, but yet we know that so many of them were prophesied hundreds of years before. The likelihood of them all coming together in that moment is just a ridiculous speculation if we think that it is anything but you working through history to bring about the salvation of those who put their faith in you. So we thank you for this day. We thank you that Easter is a great celebration, a celebration of life. And we've seen that here in this passage that it began before the beginning of time, but you have made it utterly, uh, we can be utterly assured that if we put our trust in you, and you've called us and you've justified us, that one day we'll be glorified, and we thank you for that. Help us to live for that certain glory to come. Amen. If you'd like to turn in your sheets, we're going to sing our, our final song together. Again, it's a, it's an old, it's a very, very,